Hello and welcome back to the Business of Show Business podcast with me, your host, Jamie Boddy. Unpacking the skills needed for the entertainment and creative industries and celebrating those already in them. Today, we are going behind the camera and into the TV studio as I am joined by multi-camera studio director, Stuart Earl. Stuart has worked on some of the biggest shows on British TV. And in this episode, we discuss what it takes to build a career in television, how to manage a team, and the power of storytelling. Specializing in live TV, Stuart shares some fantastic insight into the world of television. You're in for a treat, let's get on with the show. On the Business of Show Business podcast today, I'm joined by multi-camera studio director, Stuart Earl. For the last 15 years, Stuart has worked in the world of TV on shows such as BBC Breakfast, Do the Right Thing and Good Morning Britain. How are you, Stuart? I'm really good, thanks, Jamie. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Thank you so much for um, joining the podcast. I know you have a lot of early rises with what you do, so thank you for taking time. (laughs) Thanks for asking. Um, It's great to take part in it. Can you tell the listeners a bit more about exactly what a multi-camera studio director does? Because it seems that you're the driving force behind, really, TV shows coming together. Yes, no, um, as a multi-camera studio director, I work with the production team uh, to bring to reality uh, the content that they're creating. So uh, the producer will come up with the idea for the show, etc., and then it's my job to make it happen and bring it to your screen. So I lead a team of technical experts, uh, cameras, lighting, sound, uh, graphics, uh, etc., and I lead that team and we creatively pull together everything to get a TV show on air. And as you said, there's a team of experts. So it's you're kind of at the helm of the ship, but you deal with the cameramen on the floor, the teleprompters and the actual presenters. There's so many cogs that you kind of have to crank. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And that's one of the great parts about my job. It's absolutely very much a people job and I'm working with people from all different levels, from the presenters, as you say, cameramen, lighting, um, and I am leading a team. And in a sense, I'm not an expert necessarily in any of these areas of work, but I go to the camera supervisor or the sound supervisor as my expert to kind of help solve problems and, uh, and bring to reality the show that we're working on. Um, what I love as well is that you actually, on some of the shows you work on, you get the recognition. So you're behind the scenes, but presenters have kind of given you a shout out before, whether it's in jest or thank you. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, I quite like sending those to my mum and going, I was on telly again. My nan, <laughs> uh, my nan was always sort of like watching the credits and um, I've spent a lot of my career working on news programmes before I, I probably went freelance about five years ago. And they just don't have credits generally. And my, my nan was always like, I haven't seen your name on the telly yet. <laughs> so now to say to her, no, you haven't seen my name on the telly, but now the presenters are talking about me. Uh, it, it, it's, it's nice. I think it's almost a rite of passage. My nan was always was similar because I obviously come from a dance background. Was like, been on anything on telly yet? Even though you could be in a really good show at an arena or something. So when yeah. if I, whenever I've danced on a TV show, I'm like, I've made it because my nan's seen me. <laughs> the most exciting time was when I was actually had my name printed in the Radio Times. The first time that happened uh, as a little credit underneath the description for the program I was working on. That was an absolute sort of career highlight, and I'd spent years well, most of my life kind of going through the Radio Times looking at names of people who were directing shows and thinking, oh, one day, one day. 
<laughs> so let's talk Good Morning Britain. Obviously, morning show, very early for you. So what is a typical day in the life of, or morning in the life of for Stuart when you're working on a show such as Good Morning Britain? Yeah, so I've been working on Good Morning Britain for about five years and um, I'm the sort of the cover boy. So when the main staff directors are off on leave or other projects, etc., they call me in and it's been fantastic to kind of work on the show uh, for five years. I know the team really well. Um, in these COVID times, the alarm goes off at 3 a.m., uh, which is painful, but it has to be done. Uh, I'm out of the house by about, well, I aim for 3.30, but it's sometimes 3.35. Uh, then I drive to television centre, arrive in the building at quarter past four. Um, and that's when uh, I have a chat with the night editor uh, and the senior producer who've both been in the building, I think from 8 p.m. the night before, working on that morning show, the next morning show, and uh, have a chat with them about what's going on, what's in the show. I then do my prep work. So I go through the script, looking for any special items, uh, anything different. Um, I put my camera instructions in, so the opening wide shot, um, I get to choose which camera it's on and the shots uh, that I want the cameraman to get me. And so I continue all the way through the uh, three hour running order, making uh, those notes, and uh, making those decisions. And then we have a crew meeting at 5 a.m. where I run through the show with everyone who's going to be, uh, who, who's on the team that day. So floor manager, cameras, lighting, sound, graphics. Uh, and we just go through each item, just outlining if there's anything else of the ordinary. And that will take about 20 minutes to get through the show. Then I will rehearse with the floor manager standing in for the presenter. Anything that's unusual, if we sort of have props and stuff in the studio, we, yeah. we like to have a look at those. Then the show goes on air. The presenters will arrive in the studio from anywhere between sort of 10 to 6 to sort of 6, 50, so 5.58. And it's quite tight. You're like, <laughs> get in, get in. And you want to, and I have, I'll try my best to rehearse with them as well. Just the opening, just to kind of warm everyone up. Um, and then we're on air from 6 till 9. It's such a beast of a show with the timings just completely kind of running over. And often sort of by five past six, already three minutes over. By half seven, the show could be 15 minutes over, 20 minutes over. Um, and so a lot of the things that I've planned at 4.40 and then discussed in the meeting and rehearsed at 5.30 just get dropped because there isn't enough time. But it's a great show to be working on because of breaking news and uh, being really responsive. And it's a really dynamic team and they really get across. Like if the presenters, Piers or Susanna or Ben and Kate sort of say anything or do anything, then we'll be looking for images or whatever to kind of uh, back that up or sound effects and grams and stuff. So the show comes out at nine, we hand over to Lorraine, then we go for a debrief uh, with the presenters where we just have a quick chat about what worked well, what didn't work so well, and then have a chat about uh, the next day's show. And then I, I say in these COVID times, I get to leave the building uh, just before 9.30. Um, and then I'm sort of on call emails throughout the day from the day team who are building the next day's show to uh, just keep me in the loop as to what's happening and if there's anything, any special requirements or, or so on. And then about 5 p.m., five, between 5 and 6 p.m., I get a document from the next day producer, which basically just runs me through all the items in the next day show. And I try and be in bed latest nine o'clock. 
it's almost like um, a lifestyle choice in that context, isn't it? Because of like the early mornings, because obviously you could stay up till midnight, but obviously that would affect your your work and, and probably your demeanour when you arrive. So what's quite interesting mm-hmm. there, I think, is all the performers listening, we get those nerves when something's live. We know it could be live audience, live TV, something could go wrong. But it's exactly the same for you. Do you get a slight buzz not necessarily nerves but a buzz when you're about to go live and then kind of that adrenaline the whole time because it could be breaking news or like you said dropping something yeah I think because the number of air miles I've got under my belt as a director <laughs> and director of live tv um I don't get as nervous now uh, there's still absolutely the buzz there and I still love it and the production assistant or script supervisor's next to me counting down to where it is really exciting I still do get nervous sometimes but I think that's mainly because if there's things that we just haven't quite been able to rehearse properly or we don't fully know what how it's all going to pan out and and that is seat of the pants trying to make sure that it looks good (laughs) on telly Um, a lot ITV spend to me a lot of money making sure things look amazing Um, and and it's really important that I deliver amazing things for them. Uh, so that is where the nerves sometimes kick in. Yeah, gosh, so you're kind of the glue that holds it together where I can imagine sometimes when a show's amazing, you might not always get that pat on the back, but I can imagine if something goes wrong, even if it's not your fault, it can sometimes be like, maybe fall upon your shoulders. Yeah, it's really difficult. It's really difficult. And, and um as like the team leader, people will come to me and say what went wrong and it's just not my style to throw the sound man under the bus or whatever. Um, and so um, I think you have to be quite thick skinned and sort of, and be able to stand your ground and sort of just explain the situation. And, and I've, I'm always of the belief that no one comes to work to cock up and no one intentionally makes that mistake or whatever. And so I think you apologize for things. It sometimes can just literally diffuse any situation straight away, as opposed to trying to kind of like pass the buck or whatever. Yeah, I mean, personally, I kind of beat myself up if we haven't achieved what I had the vision in my mind to achieve. And no one else will know, the people around me won't know, the viewers at home definitely won't know, but I can sometimes be like, oh, that didn't work. And, that, and that's a sort of a burden that you just have to carry around with you and kind of get used to used to it. I think that's a really good sign of a good leader is when taking ownership and responsibility, because that's a really hard thing. I think especially when you're in the creative industries, wherever you are, it's kind of your work is your baby. It's our passion. So it can be. I think that's a really good skill of, that you have. And probably it takes a while to kind of get that skill. I think totally. And, and actually... It's doubly hard as a freelancer because you don't have a, a reputation that's been built up day after day after day. You come in and uh, at any one time I could be working across five different shows over a couple of weeks and you're trying to remember the style guide for this show is like that and so on. And it, it can be really difficult, but I love the job and I love I love what I do. And uh, I think that sort of provides the energy to kind of be across all these things and uh, and try and do your best and and lead the team uh, as best you can. I wanted to discuss, because obviously you have worked full-time as with an employer and gone freelance in what you do. First of all, when did that, when did you have that decision maybe to go freelance? And then maybe can you give us a bit of insight on like maybe pros and cons or what? how are you finding life as a freelancer doing what you're doing? Yeah, so I joined the BBC in 2002 and worked my way up. And basically in 
2007, I moved to BBC News and I started on News 24, as it was called then, the BBC News channel, um, and then moved quite quickly to breakfast and Newsnight and Andrew Marshall, uh, which on general election and things. But news, it's 24-7, 365 day a year enterprise. You have to work every other weekend. There's night shifts, early starts, late finishes and whatever. And also, once I'd sort of been through all the programmes at BBC News and kind of had achieved them all, I, I remember working on the election in 2015, which was amazing, on the results show with Jeremy Vine. It becomes uh, monotonous, I guess, is the phrase I'd want to use, um, and quite repetitive. And the same story kind stories come along, but they're just different protagonists in them. Um, and so... I have this big dream and still have it that I'd love to direct a live Saturday night entertainment show like The X Factor or Strictly. And I just realised that if I wanted to achieve that, I then I needed to make the jump. And that, and that's sort of what uh, prompted me to kind of step out the door. Although, I'm going to let you into a little secret, Jamie. I, I, I was a full-time employee of The Beeb and I actually went quarter time just to have that little safety net. I do four days a month for BBC News still. And they're great because we can sort of agree the days I work based on the other stuff that that's been that I've got going around me going freelance it was scary um, I spent quite a, little, a couple of years before I went actually kind of saving a bit of money behind me so that I could have a bit of pot but, I mean fortunately it really took off for me and I've not really needed to dip into that pot um, which is great I, I was lucky to kind of Good Morning Britain actually was the first thing I probably did as a freelancer um, and I did while I was stuff at BBC News, I did some stuff for BBC Sport as well, went on attachment and they used me quite a bit. I went to Rio for the Olympics in 2016 mm. as a freelancer, which was fantastic. And did lots of football things and swimming. And, and then you kind of get another job, Crime Watch Roadshow, which was another uh, amazing project, which I really enjoyed working on. Uh, and so it's been scary, but it's been exciting. And uh, the best thing about it is the variety. Yeah. Um, I've been I had the chance to work on so many great shows, do the right thing, comedians giving lectures and stuff like that, which I just wouldn't have been able to do if I was still in my stuff position at BBC News. And also in BBC News, because of, because of the 24-7, 365 nature I've mentioned, there is about 50 directors. And so it's a really competitive to kind of secure opportunities. And if you do one thing, then you've got to wait your turn before you get a chance to do the next thing. Um, and I, was, uh, I am and was ambitious and wanted to, uh, I wanted to crack on. There's so much there that I loved. And I think, first of all, it's, especially where I don't want to say it was the C word of COVID, but I think that has changed the landscape of work. So I think if you're found the part-time at the Beeb that benefits, mutually beneficial, great, why not? You're still using your skills, you've found that, but you've still got the flexibility of freelance. What I think the general myth or misconception with freelance, no matter what you do, it's the people either think that you work one day a month to earn all this money and you're in Dubai or Vegas, or that you can't make ends meet because it's freelance. And I think, no, you can build a career being freelance. It just maybe takes a different skill set and some tenacity. And it seems that you were very smart about it, where you like you researched, you had goals, like you said, you maybe wanted to direct a Saturday night live show. And you couldn't do that if you were maybe full time somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And you absolutely, you can build a career. And I've been freelance for five years now. And yeah, admittedly, this last year has been quite tough. Quite a few projects I was sort of penciled for have all uh, disappeared after the pandemic hit last March. That has been a challenge. But I know, I certainly from listening to the podcast before, Jamie and I, I, 
I've heard how much people sort of talk about it's not a job for me per se, it's a hobby. I really love doing it. And so there have been times when I've I've done 15 days in a row, had two days off or a day off, then gone in to do 11 days in a row. I've had some really busy periods where it it is difficult to say no. And that's one of the things I thought as a freelancer, I would have a bit more choice over what I did. And uh, my experience to date has been, I haven't said no a great deal just because I love the work. And also, if you are the regular cover director of Match of the Day or whatever, you can't really say no to them when they phone up and say, can you do it? Because you're letting them down. They've put the faith in you. And so it can be a bit difficult just getting that balance. Yeah, completely. And I think um, I love your honesty there because I think it is it's different. Like I said, you love what you do. Even now I struggle, even though I've technically been freelance for 14 years, intermittently taking maybe a part-time client or contract here and there. So it's not always been hustle, hustle, but it is hard still even now to set those boundaries because as you said it, sometimes it's because you love it. Sometimes it's, you don't want to let someone down. It, it's a hard kind of balance to, to strike, I think. Yeah, very much so. Um, and I think each individual person will sort of find their own sort of, rhythm and what they're accept uh, what, what they will what do it's funny I did a, a period a couple of weeks ago where I did 11 days in a row just before Christmas and I remember the last time I did it would have been in 2019 pre-pandemic I was like I'm never doing this again it's ridiculous I am going to say I'm going to have to say no to something yeah. um, and then and then and then it's just like how do you fancy doing this amazing project but I've still got my sort of safety net of the be to kind of fit in around us let's talk about like the career progression again I know that does vary for freelance Stuart to when you were at the beat but obviously now you're a multi-camera studio director and like outdoor broadcast what is I don't know if there is a typical career progression, but what is it like, say, someone who starts in TV, who wants to kind of build their way up? Is there kind of like a a path or trajectory with that? Well, the good news, but maybe also the bad news, is there's no specific career route to become, for example, a director. Um, And I had actually quite an unusual route to get there. I actually trained to be a graphic designer. I went to uni and did graphic design, but sort of decided quite quickly that I didn't want to pursue that. My housemate at uni had been on a TV course and had been doing amazing things and much more fun things. I was like, yeah, that's what I wanted to do. And the thing I always tell people now is however you get your break into the industry, you have to sort of take it. And mine was working in transmission. So um, I worked for this really tiny TV company up in Lanarkshire in Scotland the sort of equivalent to London Live Channel 6. And I worked in transmission and there was quite a bit of timing work involved in that, making sure the programmes were on air on time, etc. And I was able to use that timing experience to get a trainee production assistant role with Yorkshire Television. Um, so the production assistant slash script supervisor, they look after the timings for programmes. So they make sure you go on air on time, they count through the items uh, and make sure you get off air on time. And so as a Yorkshire television, uh, we were launching this new channel called Wellbeing, which was a joint venture with Boots back in the sort of early 2000s when uh, all these satellite channels were sort of mushrooming and very quickly disappeared. That was the first time I, I saw a director in work, a proper director in work, and a guy called Chris Ryder, who directed Blind Date through the keyhole. And he, I was sat next to him as he was piloting um, the fashion segment for this health channel. And I was like, that's the job I want. 
And I think that half the challenge in TV is sort of knowing what you want to do and what role you want to do. I think it's very obvious if you like, I want to be a presenter or whatever, but you probably don't know about all the other roles that go on to make a TV program. Um, and so I was really chuffed to get to secrets of work and then know that's what I wanted to do. I was learning the timings to run the program, to make sure the program was on time, et cetera. And that was the sort of career path I was going down and they naturally land into production management. And I sort of needed a jump ladder across from the production management ladder to the directing one. And I think my, the biggest reason it happened was just me being really tenacious, really annoying and sort of <laughs> saying to people, I want to direct and kind of like, I want what you do your work. Can I shadow you? Uh, why did you do that? Or how did you do that? And, and eventually I was, my timings got me to CBBC. And again, there was directors there who I, I became friends with and would go to the bar, a television centre and sort of chew the fat over TV production and TV grammar. And one of them said to me, do you want to come in and direct this small sequence while I watch you do it? And I, of course, jumped to the chance. So I came in on my day off and directed this sort of segment. And it was really nerve-wracking, sat there in the chair for the first time going, hello, can you hear me, <laughs> to the presenter. And that's where it started. And they did a trainee scheme and I applied for the trainee scheme and just was able to convey my passion for directing and TV and, and managed to get the job, which was great. So I finally made the leap across from being on the wrong ladder to become a director. And I love the analogy of like the ladder jumping. Sometimes you have to try something to realize you don't want it, or sometimes you have to do something to get in the door, isn't it? Like you, so you had to, you found one route in which you explored, which then allowed you over time. What I'm getting from that as well is that it's quite important to network, but not networking purely as who's above, who's on the ladder up. It's actually networking on who can help you grow your skill set, who's kind of like your cheerleader or support you or gives you the opportunity, which I think is really lovely. I hope you're enjoying today's episode. It really does shine a light on what goes on to make a TV show happen. I will make sure to have Stuart's handles in the show notes. You can click on them and give him a follow. And don't forget that as soon as you're finished listening to this episode, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave your review. Now let's get back on with the interview. Absolutely. And, uh, and interesting now, I, I've mentored and helped quite a few aspiring directors and some have gone on to great success, but I feel like I'm giving back. I've had so much great support in my career and so much love and kind of encouragement that I wouldn't be where I am today without that uh, support um, from these amazing people. The number of directors in the industry is quite small and I'm still in touch with people who helped me when I was at CBBC 15 years ago or whatever. And it's lovely to kind of just still be in touch with them and some, sometimes there's kind of thought that maybe work passes my way or whatever because they can't do it. But it is a small a small crowd and uh, it's a great community. So what advice would you give to someone who maybe wants to break into TV? Obviously, although you are like um, a studio director and out, like outdoor broadcast, you obviously you work very closely with presenters, with audio, with camera men and women. So is there any like, advice, someone listening, if they just want to get into TV, whether that's behind the scenes or on the screen? Is there any kind of tips or tricks you would give? The, the unfortunate thing is it's really difficult these days. The number of channels have shrunk and budgets and things. And so there isn't the opportunities that were around even, even 15, 20 years ago when I, when I started. But that said, I think if you're passionate, 
tenacious, have ambition and drive, you will, you will succeed and you will crack in. And, and I do a bit of lecturing and I always say to the students that I lecture that whatever job you are offered in TV, you have to take it. Because once you've got your foot through the door, you start to meet people, they move on, get you in touch with other people. It also shows you've got skills, you can turn up on time, you're reliable. Um, and I think those are really important skills that make you employable. And if you didn't have those experience, then, then you sort of, there are other people ahead of you who would have that. And then I, I think it's been sort of really curious doing your best to sort of network, to meet people, watch telly. I'm really amazed at uh, where I lecture that the number of people who I really feel aren't watching telly and can't tell you what was on TV last night or whatever. <laughs> uh, I'm a TV addict and I don't know, I don't know if that makes me particularly uh, weird or whatever, but I love it. Mm-hmm. And I could tell you what happened yeah, on telly last night. Um, and I think it's really important to watch the output. If you leave uni with a TV degree, appreciate you're probably gonna have to start at the bottom because just because you were a producer on your uni coursework doesn't mean you're going to get a job as a producer. Start from the bottom. And there's lots of great resources online as well. Uh, Lots of job websites, Facebook groups and things like that, where you can get advice, guides, how to write CV, etc. What's interesting there, because I know you know her, but Lisa Douglas, who was a guest on season two, said a similar thing about, it's all about absorbing what you want to do, because it will also help you stand out. Like it help you stand out if you know who was on that show, who produced it, what the kind of demographic is. And it's will help you kind of get above the rest possibly, or know at least how to pitch yourself or pitch your ideas to a producer or to a show. The lifeblood of TV is ideas. Is it quite like a portfolio career? And what I mean by that is like, especially as freelance, is it very much like looking at what your show will is and also looking at your CV because they may then cross-reference and they, they, as you said, it's a small world. They probably know someone who else has worked on that show. So they'll phone them and say, how was this person to work with? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, all of the sort of major roles that I've been, I've had to provide two or three references and they are followed up and they are absolutely checked out and people will employ people who they know they're going to get on with and who who's got who've got experience and history that backs up that they can work as part of a team because it's expensive putting on a tv show and then giving i mean i I feel really lucky sometimes because you sort of to do any live on itv prime time 9 p.m three nights I mean, I have no idea what the budget was, but the budget was huge and, and it's me in the chair directing. I can totally understand why they made sure they called up every referee I gave them yeah. to check out my credentials. Let's talk about that then. So obviously you said A&E Live, you've done news, you've done quizzes, you've done sports. Each one is different. Does your role, is it kind of like a, a skill set of blueprint you can kind of pick up and put down on each show? Or is there a slight level of having to be like adaptable and flexible because obviously the news is so you've got to be a bit more neutral on that you can't all of a sudden have it like come across as happy clappy with what's going on and so forth yeah um interesting as a director um and for all the different projects i work on uh, like i have a basket of skills and and for each project you bring out the different sort of skills you need from that basket so on the news um you are making sure that, as in, it is last minute, it is going on air, the top report is still being edited while you're doing the headlines. So there's a, a lot of sort of 
being calm and being able to direct and get across what the instructions clear with your instructions. When I did uh, do the right thing, for example, it was a different set of skills required. It was entertainment, but I was, because it's a project that was established for just that series, as in it's not a long running thing where you kind of dip in and out like the news. I was going on location recce's, working with the exec producer and the camera supervisor on staging and how we can set it up and so on. For all the different things I direct, I yeah, I just bring a different set of skills to the project. And interestingly, like most Italian, you can get pigeonholed quite quickly. I you always do cookery or you always do sport or whatever. And I feel actually really quite lucky that so far on Touchwood, I've been able to keep quite a broad. Uh, breadth of stuff that I do um, so I'm not quite so pigeonholed yet I mean that does have its downside because it's difficult to crack into the sort of areas that I really want to do because I'm not known but I'm lucky that I have a range of different types of shows that I work on. What I'm finding really interesting is there's this kind of parallel narrative for like forward-facing roles so whether you're a performer, presenter and how you're saying there about having to have knowing your skill set and what skill to put forward at the right time, networking, you get a call sheet, a script, being good at timings. And I just think it's really lovely to hear that there is this parallel of the on-screen aspect as what goes on behind. Um, this is really, I think it'd be really like eye-opening for a lot of listeners to be like, oh yeah, there are similarities in how I've been there myself when you're on set as a performer, long days, in between cuts or whatnot and you're just exhausted so you kind of sit there zoned out but actually taking the time maybe to like it's like absorb it and look around and be like actually this cameraman this director this makeup artist they're going through the same journey i am in that moment but it's like behind the scenes totally absolutely and i imagine you as a performer in those breaks to you reflecting about your next scene what's what do you need to know where do i need to be what what do i need to remember and and for for us behind the scenes we're exactly the same i'm sort of looking at my notes what's changed since the last time we rehearsed it, whatever, particularly on a live show, you might rehearse it one way and then there'll be script changes. Um, and it's almost, almost, there's never a down moment really, to be honest, when you're, when you're on vacation or in studio. With live TV, or you might not be allowed to say, but is there been a particular show or moment that you remember for going like completely off script, whether that's because you've had someone randomly run on screen or technology's cut out? Is there, do you, have you ever had those moments that you're like, <gasps> I think there's two I would mention to you, and they are complete and utter opposite ends of the spectrum. And it's perhaps maybe a bit distasteful, but we, we can talk about this. So on this morning, um, we uh, my first week of doing this morning, each day we had a different succession of animals on the show. We had a, <laughs> a crow, goats doing goat yoga, and <laughs> um, a horse with this uh, lady who was thinking they could be guide horses. And uh, I'm not sure it's quite a famous clip. You'll have seen the horse pooed on the carpet. Uh, just at the moment, Philip Schofield asked if they could be house trained or whatever. Um, <laughs> and it, was, it was just a fantastic moment. And yeah, the audience response to something like that on this morning is just goes off the wall. And, and so items in the running order, whatever, would get thrown out because we want to go back and sort of reflect on what the viewers are saying about the moment Monet pooed on the carpet. Um, and, and so you, you, that, that's a kind of really memorable moment when things sort of change because yeah. of what's happened. 
interesting, this is a really serious thing, but um, I'm really proud of this. The night of the Paris nightclub attacks, the Bataclan, uh, I was directing the BBC News Channel and it, the story broke about half nine in the evening and sort of 10 o'clock news then came on air. So we went off air for that half hour and then we were back on air from 10.30 to one and normally... As a director, I'd only do an hour at a time maximum, and I stayed and did all two and a half hours. And it was just a really, uh, well, a really moving evening with a really shocking story. But from a director's point of view, it was a really satisfying and rewarding program. Yeah. We were, I was working really closely with the presenter, the text producer who does the on-screen graphics. We were working so that I would show pictures and then she would know that that's she put up a strap that relate to those pictures um, and it really sort of brought home to me the teamwork element of news or a tv full stop actually on the topic of audience i always say with clients like as a freelancer like you are a per- you are a personal brand and there is an ideal market for you and i think tv shows are such good examples of having to know what your key demographic or what your audience is and how you have to really curate your show and the content you produce to get in front of your audience and for them to buy into it. Absolutely. And I think ITV or any commercial channel in particular, it's absolutely paramount. If you don't get the viewers, you don't get the money, you don't get the commission. Do the right thing, occupied the Celebrity Big Brother slot on Channel 5. And and unfortunately, it's a different show to what the celebrity people the audience were expecting and so on and it, and it got shifted around in the in the uh, in the schedule a couple of times which is really professionally frustrating from me because it's a great show that we were doing but um it just shows that you've got to get the audience and um and itv they are absolutely checking every minute who rated who doesn't rate why uh, uh, because they just this competition it's fierce competition out there we could watch Bridgerton on Netflix as opposed to uh, um, watching uh, anything on ITV. And I mean, the one thing about the Beebers, they're not quite so ratings reliant and they can be, have more of an opportunity to kind of, the stories they cover, they might, you perhaps wouldn't see on other sides because they haven't got that commercial pressure. But generally, you want the audience to watch. And so you need, you need to be absolutely sort of giving them something that makes them want to watch. A whole other skill set is looking at the results to help it steer what you do. And obviously it's different when you're working on a massive show. But for any freelancers out there, you've got to look at who your ideal demographic is, how to get in front of them. Are they engaging what you're putting out or not? Who or what inspires you? Have you had like a person or a book or anything along the way that has helped kind of inspire your journey into TV? I think actually my sort of main inspiration in TV has actually just been watching it from a kid. I remember as a kid, you bet, Gladiators. I went and watched Gladiators being filmed when I was about 12 or 13 and was shocked to discover it wasn't recorded in order and there was no music and there was no commentary. And as a TV professional now, I can totally understand why they did that because obviously you can't put the music and the commentary on. And the reason they shot it out of order was because of the logistics of moving all the different sort of pugil sticks around and stuff like that. There is one piece of advice I remember very much from an early boss when I was at CBBC, which has stuck with me. And I really think um, if you sort of extrapolate it, it can be applied to lots of other things. And he said to me, you've got three cameras, use them. Um, and I think that that was a point of sort of make the most of the resources that you've got. 
Um, and that's something I've carried on throughout my whole career. At Coinwatch Ritchie, we sort of had two manned cameras and we just had some opportunities to be really creative about, we did some sort of demos and I was like, well, actually, can we put the cameraman in the police van and relocate? Because that then in a sense makes the audience think I've got four or five, six cameras when actually I still only got two, but just I've been able to kind of be quite ingenious with the way um, I've used my resources. So I think it's taking what you've got and making the most of it. No, I love that. And I think, yeah, as you said, if you pull that out of what it is, it's so true, making sure you're using everything that you have. And I think also it helped kind of gives you that idea of like being prepared then, isn't it? You've always got like that other camera you can jump to or that other resource at your disposal. Are there any quotes or mantras that again have helped you along the way? It might be that one you just said actually about the three cameras, but is there any kind of quotes or anything that you've has helped you along your journey? I mean, interestingly, that, uh, that, that mantra that my former boss gave me has sort of stuck with me and that's the main thing. But the one thing that I feel really privileged is I've sort of been taken aside by Hugh Edwards from BBC News and sort of been given a career talking to and sort of been told, like, get out there, go and see people. And that was an amazing sort of inspiring thing when the man who is in everyone's living room every night of the week has sort of noticed me, taken me aside and said, oi, <laughs> go out there. Um, and, that, and that's been sort of inspiring for me in the way I guess that some people might sort of see quotes and stuff that helps them. Obviously you offer a mentoring and you are a freelancer. Where can people find you online? Obviously you are a busy man, so I'm not saying listeners, you can't book <laughs> him to film everything, but where can they find you online? Uh, so you can head to my website, stuartearl.tv. So S-T-U-A-R-T-E-A-R-L.tv. There's Stuart underscore Earl on Twitter. So that's my main two places I know, Jamie. I, I, having listened to your podcast, I'm like, I perhaps have room for another, another social, but it hasn't quite got there just yet. Interestingly and slightly frustratingly, uh, there's a music, really successful music composer who's called exactly my name, Stuart Earl, and we've actually got a mutual friend who knows both of, both of us. <laughs> so uh, yeah, you're looking for Stuart Earl director as opposed to Stuart Earl composer. <laughs> I, I think I like about your Twitter as well. Sometimes there's some like behind the scenes stuff, like you would have filmed an episode of Good Morning Britain, and then I'm like, oh there's like behind the scenes shot which I think is really lovely yeah it's great and I, I feel I, like as I've said I love my job and uh, I love to be able to share that and I think some people are really interested in the behind the scenes action and uh, seeing the bags under my eyes uh, with the photo I posted for <laughs> them or whatever um, it, it is part of the part of what comes with the job I think it's really eye-opening and I think more performers and creatives should take time to get to know their peers or all the cogs that are involved. Because I think, again, I'm just talking from performance training. You're so focused on the, again, being on stage, being on screen, hmm. that you don't necessarily, you're not that privy to what other roles are there or what other roles make you look good or what other roles allow you to do your job. So I, for me, hmm. it's been so interesting getting people like yourself behind the scenes who are really successful breaking it down. If I'm lucky enough to get on set again in this COVID world, I mean, I think I'll really take the time to just take it all in, I think. Absolutely. And I think just from what the start of what you said there, it's just about experts and, and actually maybe I'm quite unique as a director and I'm sure other directors do. I, I mean, I don't know a great deal about camera lenses, but I know the man who does and I go to 
to the campus supervisor or whatever and I say this is what I want to achieve what do we need to do and 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 you just trust them to be the expert to kind of go right this is the lens you want and this is where the camera needs to be positioned etc etc the sense of leadership and like whether you are again a director dance captain associate choreographer whatever you're if you're in a senior management or senior leadership role is understanding that it's okay to speak to experts or peers and say you don't have time as a director to plan the audio needs to be here camera one needs to be here camera two needs to be there the presenter like you don't have the time to do all of that so why not use again going your resources and your expertise of being there but i can delegate this here this is the go-to person not for this Amazing. Well, thank you so much. I know we're actually getting close to your bedtime because you've got to be up early. <laughs> so thank you so much, Stuart. And if listeners, if you've enjoyed the show, make sure to give Stuart a follow. I will put his details in the show notes and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. A massive thank you to Stuart for taking time out of his schedule to be a guest on the Business of Show Business podcast. I don't know how he deals with all of those early mornings. I'd be absolutely rubbish at that. Thank you so much, Stuart. His social media handles are in the show notes, so do click on them and give him a follow. If you've enjoyed the episode, reviews really help podcasts rank on Apple Podcasts so they can be discovered by other people that may benefit from them. So do head over and leave your review. And I'll be back next week with a solo episode.